Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast on Army's doctrine and the vision of warfare. Hello, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean, and today we're going to talk about one of my personal favorites in Army doctrine, the Army's keystone doctrine for all things training. That's right, it's FM 70 Day. This is one of those books that impacts every soldier and organization across our force, right up there with books like 3.0 and 5.0 for operations and the operations process, 6.0 on mission command and command and control, and the 622 series focusing on leadership. So when a critical book like this one is revised or updated, it's got ramifications across the Army, which is exactly why we need to discuss 7.0 today. And if you're going to discuss a crucial book like this one, it helps to have a team of heavy hitters come onto the podcast. So I'm lucky enough to sit across the table today from Brigadier General Charles Lombardo, the Commanding General for the Combined Arms Center Training, for, also known as CAC-T, Colonel Paul Callahan, the Director for Training Management Directorate here with CAC-T, Mr. Bill Brosnan, the Doctrine Branch Chief at Training Management Directorate, and also returning back to the podcast, of course, is Colonel Retired Rich Creed, the Director here at the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nikki. Good to be here. So before we go diving into the book, I kind of want to set the conditions or set the situation a little bit for our listeners, specifically on what is CAC-T. So I'm going to pitch this over to the CAC-T team. Can you give us kind of a quick overview on the organization itself and a bit about the training management directorate? Hey, Nikki. Uh, thanks for having uh, the CAC-T team here today. Um, you know, the Command Arms Center training, we, you know, we drive change and, and, and train and prepare, you know, our, our Army in order to prevail against the peer enemy in large-scale combat operations. We identify that, you know, invalidate the gaps, we manage training support, um, and, and really training management to provide a tough and realistic and operational relevant training environment for the Army. You know, but beyond that, I, I call a, it's really building a, a training management capability that is accessible in a persistent training environment. And that's where we're looking to go in the future. We got six subordinate organizations. I, I always tell people from the company training meeting all the way beyond the fire support coordination line, if you kind of think of it in a battlefield framework, these six organizations um, are, are really the connective tissue for the Army. And it starts with our Army Training Support Center at Fort Eustace. They manage all the training aids, live fire, uh, simulations, the land ranges uh, for the Army. And then, you know, from a, a, from a lessons learned, it's the Center for Army Lessons Learned call who's out there in the battlefield today, and they take all those best practices, you know, from our third organization, which is the Combat Training Center Directorate. And they, they manage and do the, the, the kind of the policy, but the resourcing and the, the standardizations for the combat training centers. Uh, JMRC out in Europe, JRTC at Fort Polk, and, and the National Training Center and also included in that is the Mission Command Training Program. So from our maneuver DIRT CTCs all the way to our warfighters, the Combat Training Center Directorate uh, manages modernization and just the day-to-day -day ops of keeping those uh, tra great training centers, our Army Crown Jewel, uh, you know, uh, programmed and resourced. 
Following that is our mission commanding training program. You know, one of the subsets of the CTCD. You know, in the mid 80s, it was about, I think, the third CTC built after NTC, JRTC. And that, that really was designed to give those division and core commanders a swing at the, at, the, at the fight, you know, and they do that in a constructive and virtual. And now, and in the last few years, even in the live domains. And so great program and great organization there. And they don't stop at just uh, combat training center rotations. Uh, our great MCTP team has done uh, command and control for COVID, uh, allied welcome refuge, so command and control. So they, they only not only coach and teach, but they kind of walk the walk and have stood up kind of standing joint task force headquarters type organizations to assist the Army in, in those other uh, DISCA type missions. And then uh, the final two are the National Sim Center. They truly are the connective tissue. They are the, the, the pipes, the, the simulation. And, and they also have a, a global sim capability that is, is now expanding our warfighter process in the home station. So don't, doing a lot to really connect the live virtual constructive domain. Uh, you know, great organization. We just finished an Arctic rotation and our GSC was able to connect uh, fighting out and training out in the Arctic in Alaska all the way back to Hawaii where a mission command cell was running the, the constructive simulation feed. So you're starting to really see across the, the continent uh, how CAC-T can help uh, trainers and training environments get a little more connected. And then last but not least, it's our, you know, why we're here today. It's FM70 and our great training management directorate. But it doesn't stop with doctrine. The TMD it really is set, setting up that training passport for the Army, DTMS, uh, you know, on the April or here recently, we just published the new Army uh, Combat Fitness Training uh, uh, standards. What it's going to be. So behind the scenes, uh, D, you know, the TMD team will be building all that into our uh, digital training management systems and, and being able to populate that and you know and, and really manage those training assets. So those are the organizations uh, that, that kind of make up CACT and 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 just a short kind of summary of what we've been doing. Um, but yeah, thanks. Sir, can you, uh, Colonel Callahan, can you tell us a little bit about TMD and what that little organization within such a powerhouse looks like? Sure. No, thank you. Uh, so just uh, kind of um, adding into what uh, General Lombardo just mentioned. So we, uh, we write FM70, so the Army's foundational um, publication for, for training. We run the Digital Training Management System, DTMS, on behalf of the Army. We also run the Army's training network, so atn.army.mil, which we like to be, or like for it to be the um, Army's reference of choice for anything uh, training related. In addition to that, we assist with the combined arms training strategies, uh, CATS. Uh, we also assist um, with the standardized metal process uh, on behalf of the, uh, of the headquarters uh, for, for the Army. So in other words, if we're ever struggling with CATS or ATN or DTMS, it's, it's you guys. It is. Yes, oh, man. But it's still, those are incredibly valuable and incredibly important programs of record that we've been using. And it's nice to know that there is a team that's actually working through these problems that, that folks can go to and touch back to to say, this is the lessons that I'm learning. This is what I'm observing. So I'm really glad that you guys were here today and you were able to take time away from what I know is it's a busy schedule for your team. You get a lot of car, cards and letters from the field on, hey, how come this doesn't work this way? Can't we make this one better? And I mean, that goes back to when you and I were company coming. Yeah, so right? it's interesting you say that. So we introduced about a year ago the small unit leader tool and the, uh, the digital job book for uh, DTMS. And, and actually, we have the reverse problem where my predecessor actually had a, a folder in his inbox for email 
for why uh, there were problems with DTMS. We have the opposite problem. Uh, we have trouble maintaining um, enhancements to DTMS that the field wants. So what they, what they have through the Digital Job Book Complaint Leader tool is really good. And what, we're wanting, what the force is wanting us to do is add to that. We just don't have the capability to keep up with the demand. That's cool. So there is another scene setter that we probably have to address in order to really understand why FM70 is, is such a crucial thing, and that is what is a training circular. And we've not talked about these publications before on the podcast, but I want to kind of set the conditions and set the understanding overall. So these are crucial to a greater body of knowledge for the Army, and they have a really specific role in relation to their development by the writers and how the force uses them. So I'm going to pitch this one over to Mr. Creed, because I'd like to know who manages these, and how should we as the audience think of TCs in relation to this larger body of doctrine out there? So the, the vast majority of the training circulars uh, focus on topics that are at echelons below brigade, brigade level, right? Uh, and so here at the Combined Arms Center, we uh, generally our focus for both doctrine and training is echelons above, outside of CAC-T, uh, echelons above uh, brigade. So we have our own director of training, for example, within the Mission Command Center, and they collaborate with CAC-T in terms of the training circulars and, and the, the training evaluations and outlines and metal development and so forth for echelons above brigade, specifically divisions, corps, and theaters, armies. So where does that leave? The majority of the training circulars are, are developed uh, by the directorates of training and doctrine. A lot of them uh, are kind of dual-headed. They call them a dot D. Uh, some are separate, uh, but they're at the centers of excellence within TRADOC because that's where the, the branch and functional area expertise resides, the people with the most current experience from the field those captains and majors and non-commissioned officers that, that with recent experience, um, they bring that to bear to ensure that we're training the way we want to fight. Um, and so, you know, the doctrinal um, correlation would be if an Army uh, techniques publication, an ATP, those are our most specific types of doctrine, uh, if that provides tactics, techniques, and procedures for how we operate, then the training circuits provide training methodologies and detailed instruction uh, for training on specialized equipment or processes. Things like gunnery, uh, infantry, uh, platoon, or company live fire, uh, situational training exercises at home station, and those kinds of things. So it's good to know that all these things, these things that we produce, the Army produces a lot of knowledge. So this idea that all of it works together is absolutely crucial, especially now that we are, we've, We've got a handful of CGSOC graduates that are getting ready to head out to the force and become S3s and XOs. This is good good things for them to know and good stuff for them to brush up on before they head out. Well, you know, we've had, and, uh, and CAC-T gets to see all the same folks that we see, but we're getting flooded with visitors from our allies and partners now that COVID restrictions have, have lessened a little bit. And uh, the appetite for trying to understand how the U.S. Army does this, this linkage between doctrine and training, and this process for making sure that training um, is integrated across branches, uh, functional areas, war fighting functions, and so forth, is, is something a lot of armies, you know, are struggling to do. And so we've had discussions with the Japanese, um, with the Israelis, with uh, the Brits, the French, uh, the Koreans, uh, all these folks just within the last month 
right? And, and it always turns back to, to this, okay, it's great. We're going to have this big conversation about how we want to fight. And then you have to figure out, well, how do you build an army that's going to do that? And what, what you guys do, sir, I think, is well, a huge I, part of that. I think it goes back to I, when you helped produce command and control, uh, like really getting back to the science of war fighting. Uh, we, we picked up on that in 2018 when Rich and you and the team published that. Just the getting back from pr very conceptual mission command to command and control and the science of war fighting, that, that's kind of the, the sea change and the cultural shift of taking back some of the training and, and to reinvigorate um, decisive action and large-scale combat operation skill sets. Those, are, those have atrophied over the you know, past 20 years, and we've been at it about five, six years, but it's really our doctrine has driven that culture change. And I think 7-0 is a second example of that where we are, it, it, we kind of look back at, you know, let, let Bill and the team lay that out, but we went back to 1989. How did we get to battle-focused training, the, the right reps and sets to really re-blue an army uh, to take back training. There's not going to be contractors driving it. It's, it's going to be between junior leaders, field grade officers, division commanders in the commander-to-commander -commander dialogue, to the eight-step training model, to building in retraining, you know, to build in really what the chief of staff wants to get at is those live reps at the company and below. 7-0 is written exactly for that. It's you know very small, a lot of, uh, of how-to examples, whether it's live fire, the conduct of a quarterly training brief, the, the management of training systems. And so I, I'd maybe hand it off to, if, to you guys if you wanted to just talk a little bit about that and how we've come on our 7-0 journey. <clears throat> yes, yeah, yeah, sir. You know, when we, when we went back to, to look at why, why do we want to do this, you know, the last 7-0 last was written in 2016, and that was in a coin world. Uh, so the Army starting to transition from what I would describe as a cycle of, you know, pre-deployment. If you look at the force comp pre-deployment checklist, I mean, that was, that was a monster. You know, so we asked commanders and, and leaders, you know, focus on that, you know, in order to get, get units into theater, be prepared for combat operations. So you go through the pre-deployment, the deployment, you know, conduct conduct combat operations and then redeploy, those units were in that cycle for a very long time. And, and what we found, found uh, we, uh, the ID, Army's IG did an inspection in 2014 and again in 2019. And our you know, training management directorate has done probably hundreds of mobile training team visits. So combined with the IG inspection reports, moving from a coin environment, you know, and all the anecdotal uh, you know, uh, you know, input that we get from units that you know range from division all the way down to squads. That's uh, a lot of inf information. So you know, we went back and took a look at that massive of information, and it was about the right time to say, you know, we need need to need to readdress training doctrine to bring it back into the foundational, you know, concepts, principles, and ideas that work so well, you know, with with earlier versions of it. Uh, and that, that's really the impetus of why, why we went down this road, to make it simple, concise, easy to read, easy to understand, and easy, easy to implement. Sir, any comment? No, I, I think that was a good uh, summary, Bill. Just, yeah, so what, 
I would say don't be deceived by the, the size of FM70 because there's a lot packed into it. So what we did is we took a very deliberative process, and if we could say something in a paragraph instead of a page, we used a paragraph, and if we could say it in a sentence instead of a paragraph, we used a sentence. So the core document's only about 25 pages, and then there's 11 uh, detailed appendices that support it. So yeah, it was, again, going back to Bill's comments, the kind of the shift from a you know, coin, um, you know, modular army construct back to large-scale combat operations and you know, kind of divisions and senior echelons as, as the units of action. Uh, and that's just, that creates a different construct uh, for the doctrine and, and everything kind of fell out from there. You're right, the language in the book is very empowering to company commanders and that company echelon, uh, battery or troop echelon either, that, that allows them to first grasp the language quickly and then also feel empowered enough to be able to develop training plans, synchronized training plans that get them ready for for the next mission or the next training objective that they have. It's, it's really, it's a, a terrific book. I know most people wouldn't say doctrine is interesting, but this is an interesting one. So, well, but you know, so there's an old saying that if I had more time, I would have written you a shorter letter. Mm -hmm. uh, you remember back, Bill remembers for sure, but you and I were up at TRADOC headquarters sir, when, uh, when the 2016 one came out. And that was all about, uh, the Army Chief of Staff saying, we need this thing out, we need it now. And so I remember very clearly when it was delivered, ta-da, up at TRADOC headquarters so they could they could bring it up there and show. And one of the things we said is, holy mackerel, that's a big book, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it was a good book. There was a lot of really good stuff in it. But it was written, I think, to a level that uh, field grade officers would be comfortable with and not platoon sergeants and, and first sergeants and company commanders and platoon leaders unlike the book from 1989, which was written for everybody. You know, you felt like when you read it, this was written for me and my organization. So I think that's one of the great accomplishments. And it was a lot of fun iterating that with all the different folks who will probably get to that later on and how that went. But it, it was a lot of work on their behalf to get this thing polished down to something that, that, that was like that. So actually, let's talk about that now. How did your team come together and how did you can, I want to walk through the layout of the book itself, but how and why did your team choose to scope it the way you did the, the chapters themselves and then also the appendices? It's fascinating. I can talk, talk a little, little bit to that. Uh, one getting back to uh, Colonel Callahan was saying, you know, you gotta, you got to deliver this in a way that people clearly understand. Oh, I've read a lot of doctrine. I've read a lot of policy over the years, and uh, they're, they're very, often very difficult to, to understand, in, you know, what do you want me to do or what do you want me to, to understand? So one of the things that, that we did was, as Colonel Callahan said, is, you know, deliver it in an easy, easy to read, easy to understand, and, you know, easy to, to implement uh, approach. So what was, I think the uh, 2016 version was well over 100 pages, and even earlier versions of 7.0 were up to 300 pages. Uh, you know, if you look back at FM 7.1 of 2003, that was a 300-page monster. Uh, so, you know, as time has gone on, you know, I think we've gotten a little bit smarter about, you know, developing training doctrine is units are busy, leaders are busy, you know, so, you know, those five chapters that make up the core of this manual are only 25 pages. So, you know, definitely easy to, uh, easy to at least comprehend and glean the things that, that you need, need to understand. Now the appendices, you know, that, 
that was a way to deliver further uh, detail to some of the topics that we talk about uh, in 7.0. So uh, it did that for sure, like uh, annual training guidance. Uh, we talk about uh, how to do a task crosswalk, which nobody ever talked about before, but if you go out and talk to soldiers, they know about it. They, they understand basically what it is, but not how to do it. So we, we try to try to include those kinds of topics in this manual. The other thing that, that we did, you know, relating back to training circulars, uh, from the 1980s up until present day, day, there were specific topics that were aligned to training management, like how to conduct an after action review, how to conduct tr company training meetings, how to do lane training that hadn't been updated since the 1980s. So this was a good opportunity to add some of, some of those topics, you know, in the single place where you want leaders to understand training doctrine. So, so that, was a, that was the second uh, piece to, to the appendices. So, so in one place, I can understand those five chapters of, you know, the principles of training and, that, you know, what you want me to understand and think about. But we also deliver a lot of the details that we know works so well and was so well, well received. I mean, even today, you know, leaders talk to me about, you know, what happened to that, that training circular on how to conduct company training meetings. Well, you know, one of the things we did was polished it up, but that, that was a really good manual. And even today, le leaders still follow it, but now it's part of the field manual, you know, a, a one-stop shop, if you will, for Army training doctrine, so. And it's not just that the book itself has hooks out to the other key documents and doctrine that you need to actually conduct some of these key tasks. So if it doesn't give, if it doesn't scratch the itch completely, you're going to get a reference out to someplace else, and which is why FM7, it's so elegant in its simplicity, and, and it really is, it's a great book. So I didn't think about this when we were first working this a couple, couple two and a half years ago, but it's become increasingly obvious to to us as we work our way through multi-domain operations and specifically what Army forces have to do in large-scale ground combat operations. As we say, we work as part of a joint and combined arms team. Well, what is a joint and combined arms team? It, in a LISCO environment, you require a very high level of subject matter expertise. Uh, and whatever echelon you're talking about, you have got to be the best in the world at your particular job. And it's your focus is your particular job, your military occupational specialty, your branch or your functional area. Otherwise, the combined arms doesn't work if everybody isn't pulling their own weight. And I think the beauty of this very simplistic applies to everybody, can be understood by everybody is, is they can take what the training doctrine says and apply it in their own community. And it's not all about, okay, we're gonna, you know, or counterinsurgency, which everybody is pretty much doing the same kind of things all the time, uh, year after year. This is a very different environment. So it, it, to drive that cultural change, you needed a, something authoritative to speak to training in a way that, that uh, was applicable to everybody across their different areas of expertise. Well, and I, yeah, I think 7.0 gets us back to mastery. That's what we're trying to get, an army that has mastery of, of their of their tactical task that they have to do and and, and uh, t to me a big part of it what spoke to me is the emphasis on you have to fight to train you know the train as you fight but you have to fight for those opportunities and I used to have a saying uh, you know that every round fired whether it's live virtual or constructive ought to train as many echelons as possible 
And, and we just don't have the time to do standalone siloed training events when, when the artillery goes out to, to register their, their guns. If we don't have observers out there sensing it, if we don't have a mission command set up to command and control it on a JCR, if we don't have echelons, whether it's a company, battalion, and brigade, and the fires community in their command post up, it's kind of a shame on us because that's a golden opportunity. Just from sensing or test firing a weapon system, you can you could train every formation you know in, inside of a division, and so that that's part of the spirit of this. And we used a lot of live fire examples. I, I come from a heavy combat training center background. So when we started thinking about the live fire annexes, we turned it over to our combat training centers. Those are our masters. They do it every month. They, you know, they do it for 100 hours a month in a live setting. And uh, so we had them kind of unleash you know, the training and leader development opportunities to kind of hit that thread that you know, leader, you know, a lot of leaders, you'll hear them say, hey, I don't have the time to do this leader development because I'm doing this training. And you know, like, it's one and the same. Training is the vehicle that you do develop leaders. And so we, we wanted to illustrate that in a how-to kind of example of how a brigade could take a company team through a CALFEX or through the Integrated Weapons Training Strategy doctrine, the, the dot .40, and, and how that would develop, you know, the leader development opportunities that you garnered just from doing that alone. And so, I, you know, I learned a lot of this as a, as a brigade commander. I think we've learned it our whole career, watching my, my NCOs train me as a young lieutenant, as apprentice. And, you know, it takes you the 10,000 hours to get to that mastery. But at that point, you know, this is why we got to codify it in doctrine. And, you know, Bill gave us a pretty uh, high mark. You know, the, the 89 version, I think, uh, lasted. It endured for a good 13-something years. That's what we want, we hope, out of this current 7.0, that it endures. It's timeless. It's got some very simplistic principles. And that's why we've tried to, I think, lay it out in the manner that we did. So regardless of the Army Force modernization model, you know these these uh the, 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 this thing will have some good tenure in it, and I think it'll it'll be long lasting. The hard part, and it's not, it's a fun problem to have, is we got to get that information out to the force, and and teach them in consumable chunks how to operationalize this great manual. It has, I, it has to become part of the culture. It does. It's a, it is a that is exactly right, Rich. It's got to be a a cultural change of taking back training. There are no contractors going to show you how to combine arms. It's you, your platoon sergeant, out in the battle position. You're going to have to you know, dig in the battle position. It's you, your NCOs, solving this, you know, guided by doctrine. You know, that's kind of what we're trying to get after it. I'll pin this rose back on you, sir. So how would you, having this book, if you were to step back into your brigade commander and your brigade commander time period and hat, I'll get to the rest of you gentlemen as well to ask the same question. How would you, or what would you do to start mentoring young leaders as they're using this book and also starting to use some of the new tools that are out there produced by TMD? Uh, that's a great question. And because um, I, I try to, to use this um, reflective time with, when I talk to PCC, here's the scar tissue of what I did not do correctly. And if I had this manual, the first thing I would have done is uh, brought everybody in on like an offsite commanders, first sergeants, platoon leaders, platoon sergeants, field grades, and let's underwrite the risk of stuff we're not going to focus on. So let's prioritize training. Let's invest a lot of time and in, in in, in collectively write a training vision that is accepted by everybody in the organization that's feasible. And I think it starts there. If you put together a good 
annual training plan based off of your core division and your force, you know, your ARCOM's guidance, that at least starts the training contract. You know, if you do that first and then you get their buy-in on here's what we're going to be able to do this year or two years, here's where, and then here's where we will focus different things. Because I came in and wanted to, hey, here are our METs. We will do those in every, you know, six-month period and we'll reevaluate. And I think today, and in this manual, we talk about that. What are we going to, what are we prioritizing that we're not going to be able to do? And then give that feedback to your higher headquarters and let them help underwrite that risk for you. That is a really a, a big part of 7 is really getting granular in our commander-to-commander dialogue and, prior, and really focus on prioritizing training. Not just the eight-step training model of the plan, prepare, prepare, execute, and assess, but also the retrain. Because I think we got caught early on in decisive action, you know, in LISCO. Our training programs were so rich that we didn't have time to go back and retrain. And luckily, we have a great force comp commander. Our chief has even helped us, hey, focus on company live and below, do the retrain, get mastery at that. And before you move to the next echelon, make sure you're, you're proficient at that level. And so that, I think a good training guidance, a good dialogue that had buy-in, and a plan that allowed for retraining, if I just did those two things, I think you would see increased lethality uh, from being able to shoot, move, communicate. Colonel Callahan, you're up next. <laughs> I agree with uh, General Lombardo's comments. I would, from, from my foxhole, uh, the prioritization of training. So having commanders and leaders at Echelon prioritize what's the most important to train. And then as General Lombardo said, said underwrite risk to what's not as important. We wrote an entire chapter on it. It's, it's chapter two. So in most cases, uh, units do not have the time or resources to train on everything. Uh, we just said it out loud, and then we put it in writing in, in FM 7.0. It's, it's out there. So units that think they can do it all, um, it's, it's really hard to do that unless you're a very small, specialized-type unit. I'd also look at the construct of a 7.0. So the long-range training plan is different than the unit training plan in, in FM 7.0 from 2016. The whole construct is different. The long-range training plan is based on a fiscal year construct, so you're looking at least into the next FY, and it's a top-down process. So you have the pri training prioritization from your senior headquarters, and you have the, um, you know, the directive guidance of what they want you to be focused on in terms of prioritized training before you even begin that FY, before you even start developing your training plan. And if you do it on an FY construct, that really the, the great part of it is it goes into resourcing. Once you get your annual training plan approved at your annual training brief and it becomes your annual training guidance, then, you, th then you're off to the races. You can actually resource it and execute it you know, as, as planned with a few exceptions based on uh, resource constraints. Then I also have uh, units or, and individuals look at the concept of task mastery. General Lombardo mentioned it earlier, but I think there's still some confusion out there of what task mastery is. Um, I think the best way I've, I've seen it described is you train on a task until you get it right that's trained, right, based on the standards found in the training evaluation outline. And then for certain very specific tasks that you want to achieve mastery on, you continue to train on those until you can't get it wrong, and that's task mastery. But because it's resource intensive, you really got to be focused on what you want to be good at. And the, condi the conditions change, right? And so the, the doctrine gets to that. But yes. We used to talk about in the way old days about yeah you're not a t on that topic you know until you can do it in in mop four in the dark yeah, yeah. right and, and so if you can do it you know with your pro mask on and everybody suited up and you can get your comms to work i mean all the things that have to happen to be able to do it under the most demanding possible condition 
I, I would throw a thing out there, and to me it always popped out of this version, much like it did in the old doctrine, which was you have to be a subject matter expert on the topic that you're training other people on. So I had a training support brigade. That's what, that was my brigade command, and, and so we trained uh, Army Reservists and National Guards folks to, to deploy to Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, if you were training people uh, on a particular task, and we would do individual and collective training, right, it's kind of a certification piece. And, and so a lot of it was directed, as Bill had talked about earlier, right? You got the big long list of things that you had to do. But you got all kinds of units with special capabilities, and they had to be able to do their special things. And what I found was, you know, having somebody stand up there and just read off a list, because that's all they knew. You know, that was like an indicator to me that you guys didn't prepare for this. And so we weren't going to the doctrine to do it. I was coasting off the experiences from the, the previous doctrine. But uh, that and the other thing is accurately assessing yourselves, right? Like, sometimes we, we just assume that we're no good at anything and, and we're going to start at the bottom. There's reasons, human reasons why we do that. And then there's people that make assumptions that, well, if we did this six months ago or a year, we ought to still be okay, and almost always you're, you're wrong on that. And I think the models and the, uh, the principles in here help you avoid that pitfall, because we've all, we've all suffered it, right? I was going to ask you, sir, about what, what you, how you would view this book if you were to go back to the ACRC experience and, and multi-compo training development. That, I think it's something that's often lost in doctrine, and this is one of those books where it actually does it reflects it well, the multi-compo approach and readiness. Well, yeah, and, and so if we had had this book, one of the things we would have done is, you know, you know, you knew back then pretty far ahead before someone was going to mobilize and come to a training station. So one of the things we would have done when we first reached out to the units and met them for the first time would have brought a stack of 7-0s with us probably and just gone over the way in which you should address training at home station because the more you could do at home station the less pain we have you know, when you show up at the mob site so that probably would have been the first one the other thing is i would have looked at my own team differently and really um, made fewer assumptions about our level of competence to train certain things and i i, I would have you know if i had a redo that's what i would have done different i think first army and division west and division east all kind of have that same internal struggle all the time when they're looking at are we prepared to train as ocs but also are we prepared to guide uh, units towards being ready because oftentimes our reserve components combo two combo three with the guard as well or, i'm sorry reverse that um those organizations tend to feel lost and they're working with such a limited time period to try and get ready for that. Well, you talk about the factor of time, Nikki, and I think that's a huge part of what we were getting after with 7.0 and TMD and, and then how that connects to the training management. You know, after we assess the training, how we populate training at the point of performance. And, you know, and that to me, that all feeds back to unencumbering company commanders and first sergeants. So they're not in the you know, back when I was a lieutenant, there was one computer in the company and, you know, we all took turns using it. But our place in the battlefield was out in the training environment. We were across the cattle guard with our, with our, with our first sergeants and our NCOs and we were training out there. And so, and I think especially with the digital job book and the small unit leader tool, you can populate those training, those meds, those ACFT weapons at the range. So you're not coming back 
you know, doing that, you're back doing, you're, you're supervising recovery. So we, we, we really, it's about placement of key leaders and keeping them have the access back to their units. And I think that's what the TMD team has given back to the army. They're giving leaders back to their formations because it's, it's easier. You could be populating in the back of the LMTV on your, your rifle scores, or when you get done with table six on your tank and that AAR, you can populate that score there. Um, in a much easier fashion than the 12 uh, Excel spreadsheets and your nug and data. And so we're working our way towards that. Um, but I think that's also very helpful. It's the assessment of training and then keeping that assessment so we don't lose it for the next time we train. And, that, and that's our next goal as we can holistically codify the results of training. We have access back to it to inform our next cycle of training. And so um, I, I wonder if we had to do it all over again would we have done it differently? I mean, would, would, you know, we were forced to go to the modular army, but could we have just task organized? Because I was General Dempsey's aide at the time, and his whole premise was, hey, if I had the 3rd Cav again, that was his regiment, in 60 to 90 days, I could go back and re-blew re, re those LISCO skills. And I talked to him a couple months ago. I said, sir, as I reflect on that, you couldn't say that today because the atrophy of a generational talent is gone. And so you could go out to the field for 60 to 90 days, but it would take us 60 to 90 just to figure out what we're doing. And so, you know, those NCOs in 2004 came in during the Cold War, had, had reforgers, had fought across Europe, had, had done the, the airland battle and all the reps. My, my gunner, whenever I took my tank platoon, he drew the tank, was a Silver Star winner in Iraq in the invasion, had, had killed 22 Iraqi T-72s, was, you know, was the brigade commander's gunner, but he knew it was 008 in the 2nd Armored Division. It was the 8th tank drawn by 367 Armor, and he mastered that tank. We shot 1,000. He shot the you know, 850. I did my little 150, but he knew everything about that tank. But he had the barometric pressure, gun tube, boresight data for the, the 400 times that he did it in his green notebook, and he had green notebooks like the little supply ones duct taped together binded and he could tell you hey sir in march um based on this temperature here's where it's going to shoot and hey, retrack your bore sight i'm like how did he know that like i was out there but you could do a sequel to the movie shooter right where do we grow that mastery back in you know the, the, he had ownership of that tank that was his tank you know you could eat off of it and then today when i as a brigade commander i'd go out into the motor pool and i would say hey let me see your your, your boresight bore data. And he's like, oh, sir, it's in digits, it's up here. And th this is a platoon sergeant telling me that. I'm like, wrong answer, man. Like, you know, it can't be accessible when you go into the computer. How do you get that kind of tactical wasta back uh, from, from, you know, because our NCOs will always have to train our officer corps. Um, yeah, and so that's what I worry about. How do we bake that back into our NCO well, corps? But, but there's a, so the age of a E7 platoon sergeant dropped the average age dropped about seven years. It did. Uh, in a two or three year period between yeah. about 04 and 07, yeah, right? You're right. And, and so. That's the other point, yeah. The, the NCOs are much no. younger, which means they don't get as many reps. Right. Unless you give them opportunities for reps. <clears throat> yeah. So we got talking to That's two of the high speed cavalry majors that were guys that write articles. I mean, big brain dudes that were over in the college and over in Sam's. And so they wanted to talk something. So I went over and ate lunch with them. And uh, we got talking. And uh, so there's three of these, you know, super geniuses all sitting there. Yeah. And uh, 
they were talking about like their experience level. So they all had multiple rotations yeah. over overseas, um, you know, doing hard government work. And uh, none of them had done more than three gunneries, and <laughs> two of them had only done two gunneries. And I said, wow. wow. And, and so they're going to be future battalion commanders. I, said, I did four gunneries as an S3. Yeah. Right? I mean... I did four as a lieutenant before I went to the career course. So it's... Like eight. You, you just got to have the opportunities to do it. And then yeah. some people were saying, well, then you had this other discussion with some other folks who have went through the Objective T nightmare. Yeah where every time you broke up a crew, everybody got sent out. And so they'd done all these gunneries, but they never did them with the same people. Right. And so it's like, I'm not sure whether, what I, good lessons I learned or not. Was I just lucky because I, cause I didn't even yeah. hardly know the people I was yeah. with because they kept doing this thing where you had to keep, that was where I was trying to get to with the, the certification all the yeah. time. It was all about certification and you were missing the forest for the trees, right? right. I mean, I, I need a, a team. There's right. a team aspect yeah. to training too, yeah. right? Well, and you, yeah, to get to that proficiency, to get to mastery, we got to, and that's why I think we got to go back. You remember, we were at Trey Aquin, I think Joe Martz and him came and we talked about, but like when we lost the MTPs, mm-hmm. we're getting a little bit back to it with cats, but to me, the next level would be to really put the rigor back in and, and get that. Hey, you can do nine, 90% of the task, but if you still can't breach and, and assault the enemy, then you still haven't won. Even though, hey, I've done nine out of 10, ten Mets, I'm green. You know, like it's gotta be outcomes based, you know. <laughs> so I've long said, you know, you know what a really good battalion is? A battalion that does really well at a combat training center uh, is, a, is a battalion where uh, the companies and platoons can execute their drills. Yeah. So the different forms of attack and everything, at that level, when you're talking FM, you're talking drills. And to be able to execute drills, you know, contact right, contact left, go to wedge, go to this, executing the defile drill, all of those things, the, the speed of execution matters. And to be fast at doing that requires a whole lot of reps, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of things that are unspoken that don't have to be said when I direct you on those things. And so, you can't do the division thing. I can't even uncoil a division from a tactical assembly. And I've only seen that, I've only done that once, right? And that was in, in Germany uh, doing it. But all the little things, the, the outcome is an aggregate. Yeah. So the aggregate of the division, the higher the echelon, the number of things in the aggregate that have to happen on time and, and to standard is huge. You know, that you know, we're, we're getting there. It's just we got to be able to work through the, the interfaces and interdependencies of you know, you drive your tank, you finish dispatching it, the miles and hours that you have just driven that tank will automatically speak to another Army system, whether it's GCCS Army or it's, and then those hours and miles accumulate to a driver's badge that talks to IPSA. You know, we're looking at AI, machine learned kind of intuitive data management to inform uh, all the personnel transactions, yet another kind of um, you know, tax on leaders, you know, the, to do all that stuff. And that's all part of training. You know, it's, you know, it's not just the execution of training. It's the stuff you do afterwards, you know, the assessment, the after action reviews, recovery, and, you know, and then the, the, the preparation to get back into it. And so I think, you know, 7.0 lays out a template of how to, and then the rest of the TMD's work and portfolio really gets the, the, the kind of the connective tissue to be able to work that stuff in there. So... No, no. In, Mr. Brosnan, how about you? What are you <laughs> telling them young captains? 
<clears throat> well, I, I think it, <clears throat> we, uh, you know, I, I give, you know, sometimes classes and lectures, and I, I get to talk to, to junior leaders. <clears throat> and the one thing that, that I think FM70 has done, you know, it, it puts the ownership of training in the hands of commanders, but that also includes platoon leaders, squad leaders, crew and team leaders, you know, because we hear comments all the time, you know, from company commanders and platoon leaders, I'm going to wait for brigade or battalion to tell me what to do. <clears throat> so there's still that, that culture of, you know, come train me, you know, because I, I don't know how to do, do this business. Uh, so it, it's obviously getting better, but we still get comments from junior leaders that, you know, when it comes to training and training doctrine, the, there's the, this expectation that somebody's going to come and train my unit for me. Uh, you know, and I think what 7-0 is, 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 is pushing leaders to do is you own it. You know, you're responsible. Commanders are responsible. Platoon leaders are responsible. Squad leaders and all the way down. Uh, and, and if, you know, if I was going to advise, you know, a junior leader on anything is, you know, take this book, book understand what's in it, but you're, you're the owner of training, training your unit and bringing your unit to some, some degree of proficiency. Uh, because right, right now, I, I think we're, we're getting there, but it's, it's, a, you know, it's a slow burn, I suppose. Well, and you know, when you're used to other people providing it, you're, you get a very skewed uh, attitude about training, I think. And I could be wrong about this, but I don't think I am. I, it's, okay, I'm waiting for someone to provide me this product and I'm just gonna fall in on it. Um, and therefore, I'm waiting. And the principles that you have in 7.0, uh, both at the ADP and FM7, uh, both pubs, really should be driving a change in attitude, which is I should be looking for every possible opportunity to train. Um, and as a platoon leader, you know, if you go back far enough, the expectation was, hey, I'm providing my training plan to the company commander on how we're going to get after this. We've got gunnery going up. We're going to do chair drills. We're going to do TGS, uh, TCGST. Now it's GST. Yeah. Yeah. All of those kinds of things. And you can do those in a room. You can do them sitting out uh, on the ground out in the company area. You don't yeah. need special equipment to right. do that. You can do tabletop exercises. You can do whiteboard things. There's all kinds of things you can do. Um, and it was always alarming to me that that, that was not a norm everywhere right? well in the you know you look at in the mrx in the coin environment we went out to the field as a brigade at the battalion as a minimum yeah and i remember this as a three and xo at fort hood and as a young tank platoon leader though in the early 90s i deployed my platoon to the field by myself at times in the platoon sergeant work with the company first sergeant and we would just go out and train right. we we it was just training it what not everything was in eval we were training to get better, and we, we, we used our emission training plan standards. But I think that's part of the culture of it's okay for you to take your platoon out, you know, at the platoon leader, platoon sergeant level. Go out, deploy yourself, because what you learn when you're by yourself, you forget something. It's a lot more painful than to ask the company. And, and you know, you can take that up at Echelon really training and given that same independence that i gave the platoon in the southern border of the afghanistan you know that was out there on a cop by themselves we've got to really take those lessons learned and continue you know the last 20 years taught us a lot about independent decentralized operations we got to apply that in a, in a uh in a LISCO environment to, to enable and empower these junior leaders that they've got the capability to do that we just got to trust them 
Well, and it's not all linked to a certification. Right. Right? So folks are like, well, you know, I'm going to do this event so that I can say that I've got these things checked off and I'm, you know, the old Objective T idea. We're going to do this window and we're going to hit these gates. And we're, okay, training's not all about hitting gates. Right? Training's about reps and experience and 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 being uh like you said on your own and figuring things out and assuming that responsibility because like you said when we go deploy all of a sudden everybody gets thrown into the deep end of the pool and and and, you know we're going to become band of brothers and sisters just and self-actualized when we actually haven't done that on our own when did you get the chance to do that well and to to facilitate the ability to get you know sets and reps we we created the concept um, called battle task which is you know we have mission essential tasks down to company level but then we created the battle task at you know below company level and what that really is intended to do is to empower platoon leaders and squad leaders and you know, non-commissioned officers in charge of you know teams squads and crews to identify at their echelon those tasks that are the most important for doing the mission at, at their level and then they recommend those tasks up to the, at least the company commander if they're battle tasks to ensure nesting, but those non-commissioned officers and platoon leaders are responsible for training at their echelon. And then as you said, to get to the to the sets and reps, it's it's focused. So it's it's we're not doing everything. We're focused on these specific battle tasks and we're gonna do them until we hit the proficiency level designated or on certain ones we achieve mastery. So all of this, the idea of empowering company grade leaders all the way down to the squad level and then also sort of underwriting that risk and owning it begins with understanding principles and kind of going towards that direction a little bit. I kind of want, I do want to dive deeper into how you came up with the principles you did because the ones that are in ADP 7.0 right now, it's only four of them, and then all of a sudden FM 7.0 comes out with these seven principles that really are like, how did these who's were these and where did they come from because they're awesome like i like them i'm cool with them (laughs) so what what we did um when we started this process this was summer back of 2019 and um we we probably need to just take a a quick step back so one of the challenges that that i at least saw with the 2016 version of of fm 7.0 is that it was overly complex so it, it talked about training management through um through the operations process so plan prepare execute assess it also talked about it through the military decision-making process. And then as, as if that wasn't enough, we also talked about it through uh, the mission command philosophy. So that's an awful lot to try to get after training management. So we wanted to simplify it as, as much as we could. And as we were doing that, we, we just kind of went back to, the, back to the basics. We went back and did our homework and started with the 1988 version of FM 25-100. Um, and, and we just started kind of looking back at you know some of the the, uh, the manuals, the, the field manuals that had a really good reputation, uh, 25-100 probably being the best, just kind of as the, the gold standard. And we kind of went back and looked at it as, okay, well, why is it the gold standard and what's in it that maybe we need to you know, bring back or you know, pull back forward? So we went through all of the, uh, of the FMs um, and the, you know, the ADP. Yeah, I think the, uh, the big one I, I really appreciated, it, you know, we added to fight the train, but also sustain levels of, of training proficiency over time. And what we learned a lot um, in the R4 Gen model where we would, you know, purposely bring a unit together at MRX minus 45, you'd go to the combat training center with your people, and then you'd deploy, you'd come back, and then you broke it completely apart. And so I like that we've reintroduced, hey, you've got to maintain in that band, you know, and to sustain your level of training, but also, Train at a level that is sustainable. Um, you can't 
you know, and, and you think about in you know, a people's first environment, like you can't break yourselves before you get to the combat training center rotation to only know that you have a rotation, maybe a deployed, you know, you enter that deployable module. So it's got to have some balance to it. And, and, and that's where I think um, Paul and Bill's team, they really get into the nuts and bolts of how to architect a training calendar so it is sustainable over time. There, you know, you got to pay your taxes and investment and services. You know, that's a training event. And you've got to look at the training management and the battle roster management, the, the training, the management of people, whether it's a sustainable readiness model or the rearm uh, model that we have today. Soldiers and leaders are going to come and go in small percentages, but it's really about how the commander and first sergeant use the art and science of retaining proficiency in those crews you know we're going to give people back to tradoc those broadening assignments because the enterprise and institutional army needs that in order to train the next round and so i think that whole training at a level that you can sustain not only from a maintenance perspective so you don't run run off that maintenance cliff if you will if you're an armored unit we all know what that means you got to have time to reset your people uh the equipment and your systems and your families but it's it's more about just maintaining a, a, a an, you know a, a sustainable tempo of training so so it's predictable you know people ask me hey how do you reconcile this with the people's first initiative i go it fits right into it we want if, you know a, a predictable training calendar that is engaged with engaged leaders is probably 90 percent of the uh, the issues and some of the things that, and the problems that you'll have in a unit you know on flow of communication and expectation management we think that's all really about the, the principles in 7-0 you know drive you know commanders driving training non-commissioned officers leading the individual certification and training and then populating and publicly communicating your, your guidance and training and informing your lower and your subordinate headquarters here's where how you fit into the plan and, and here's your trade space you know and i think that's all part of it we used to we used to i used to make me crazy when we used to talk about the ctc rotation get ready to go to ntc that's the super bowl mm -hmm. right so wrong sport right right <laughs> readiness in the army is more akin to a baseball season yeah. we got 162 games and when i get to that capstone training event it's not one event there's five or six or seven events there right and i want to win them all mm -hmm. um but if i can win you know if i go four and three i win i win the world series right yeah. um but all those things that you have to do over the course of a very long train you know you've got all kinds of people coming and going off of your team You've got to do a lot of uh, routine things routinely, you know, whether it's batting practice or the way you warm up and stretch, all of those things. And you don't want to take the, the metaphor too, too far, but it's, <laughs> it's a different mentality that involves a much longer amount of time. And you can't burn, like General Parks used to say, you can't burn up all your organizational energy at 100% all the time. I mean, you got to be able to operate at a certain level because you're going to be asked to do all other kinds of things too. So one of the questions that I got hit with on social media, oddly enough over Twitter, um, was discussing this specific area. It was the, the P-Week model and how that worked against or what was variations from R4Gen. And more importantly, I think that what really came out of it was there was a lot of us, myself included, that grew up in from that company and troop and battery position in our lives with R4Gen and red, amber, green cycles. Right. And that just, it became this you know, giant horse blanket around us that kept us from actually having a chance to get into permissive training environments that let us be 
well, let's be company commanders for a change. How do they, how does Pee Week model balance that idea of being prescriptive, but being permissive at the same time and still allowing a commander to to protect their companies and, and do training? Yeah, so the, the Pee Week methodology is, is a time management system. Um, so it's not prescriptive. Um, you can use green, amber, red. But we've talked to some law enforcement units that use a, a green, amber, red, blue cycle, where blue is kind of the law enforcement time that they're, they're spending uh, on the roads keeping us safe. Uh, some units just based on you know their size and, and number of units available are on a red or green cycle. So from a doctrinal perspective, it's, it's not as um, important to us which um, time management system is being used, but that one is being used. And really, the, it's not for managing taskings. I think some people get confused with, hey, how do I you know, manage taskings through it? The intent of it is to protect the collective training time in order to ensure that as many units are getting out to execute you know, with all of their personnel, as many of those key higher echelon, whether that's squad, platoon, company, whatever, uh, collective training events with all of their personnel. And then the units that are not in that cycle, because you have a time management system in place, are, are doing it on the red cycle, still executing uh, training as they can. But that way, it, it's being managed. The other part I'd like to highlight on that is it, it's a great methodology, um, but it's, it's a, in my opinion, it's, it's a how to do stuff, not necessarily a, a what to do. So you still need to have a prioritized training, a task prioritization within that. So train on this during this time period, well, train on, train on what? Train on attack, train on defend. That's your prioritization, I'm gonna underwrite risk and that stuff. And then I think you're off to the races. So it, it's a great methodology. It actually came from one of the cores. It's being adopted uh, in several units across the Army. Uh, we're fully in support of it. But uh, just remember that as you're instituting it, don't forget to prioritize that training and inform your unit and the units underneath you what you wanna focus on. And that comes out of a battalion and squadron commander, right? Okay. Yeah, and that, I mean, that brigade commander, as he's working, he or she's working with the division, I, I like it because it is a tailorable, um, and, and it does empower at the subordinate level, but it's tailorable. I mean, uh, an example, the 4th Division has a heavy striker formation in it, and General Hodney today could use that P-Week model to provide focus but then allow the decentralized kind of methodology, allow those BCTs to, to prioritize as a part of, you know, as we talk about commander-to-commander -commander dialogue back in the 7-0, how they would tackle that. So there's not a discrete, hey, here is the, the, the cross, here is the, you know, very rote gated training strategy. They could maybe get after services up front. And then they'll work, you know, you know, the recovery from that, then they'll work into individual or they can do the integrated weapons training strategy down the line. I do like the green, amber, red. I grew up on it, but I think there's opportunities in that. And I had a really good brigade commander as a battalion commander, squadron commander. He viewed, you know, he viewed the red, red cycle. He's like, it's an opportunity. It's, it's a place where you can focus and that's your, that's your reserve force, you know, and he would always say, Hey, if you're in red, you're doing a lot of great individual training, but you're also the reserve for the installation, the brigade, the division, and you can practice those kind of things. Be prepared to, and, and, and granted, you are gonna get consumed with a lot of red cycle taskings, but while you're doing that, you could really train junior leaders to go to the range one day and be just the be prepared aspect of it. It really lent itself, at least when we went in our counterinsurgency fight down to Southern Afghanistan, those platoon leaders that were in red, he turned it in, he turned everything into a training event. There was no taskings. Those were just training opportunities. And, you know, I just thought, I think that's, it's, but that's all in the, the command approach. 
he had put put our squadron on as the unit that ran the training for the Warrior Forge. It was all the cadet summer training. But instead of it being a tasking, he turned it into a, a full up kind of counterinsurgency fight. We had an AO and our tasking was to provide route security for c cadets, buses to get from point A to point B. And instead of a live fire demonstration, he turned it into 16 Calfexes. So in the summer where I thought, oh, I'm red all summer, it's gonna be horrible. I got an entire, you know, 120 days of training, 80 of it in the field. Our, our troop commanders were able to do independent training. But that's just one example of a brigade turning, you know, and it turned that into, it's not a tax, it's an investment in the training. So it's really the way, not just spinning it, but the way you manage it, you know, and, and the way you fence it. And that's, again, training management things that you, he did without any core, we didn't even have a division. It was at JBLM at the time. There was no training guidance. He took that developed a plan and, and gave us the opportunity and the power. Here's the blank canvas, go, go support Cadet Command. That was basically the guidance I got. And so I, I, I appreciate that. And that's the kind of leader development that we, we you know, aspire to get from 7.0 today. Well, and it comes back to, Mr. Creed, what you said before about this idea of there's a change in tone and a unit will take on the tone of its commander. If a commander yeah. is completely invested in this idea that everything is a training opportunity, it yeah. just needs to be resourced and, and the risk needs to be mitigated. Right. So one of the other differences in this latest version of 7.0 is the instructions for developing the crosswalk. Make sure that it's nested with a metal all the way down to those like individual supporting tasks, the, the battle tasks. Um, is, was this less prominent in 2016's 7.0? Yeah, yeah, I guess. But it seems like it promoted this real reliance on all the systems, ATN, um, the CATs, the commander's training uh, strategies it's just to develop a unit plan it required some some training and education how and this was also something that my, my peers and i have been discussing on twitter like how is this how is this change now giving power back to leaders and how are we balancing all of these digital and online tools it seems it's a lot <clears throat> well i think previous doctrine never never really walked the dog down to the individual soldier level everything stopped at company level with METS. I mean, if you look at training doctrine, that was the focus that, that that's what we did. In fact, we didn't talk about weapons and we didn't talk about collective live fire either. <clears throat> so when you stop and think about, well, what makes a unit proficient? Well, it's those three things. It's mission essential tasks, it's collective live fire, and it's weapons qualification. And all of those things, you know, in a composite, make a, a trained and ready unit, uh, if you will. Now, getting back to that idea of mission essential tasks, you know, prioritizing those because you only have, you know, a certain amount of time to train, a certain amount of resources. So you really have to have to understand that you train the most important things that the unit needs to be proficient in, in order for, for mission success. Below that, you know, platoons, squads, crews, and teams, let that idea doesn't just stop at the company level. It has got to go down all the way down to the individual task. And what I ask leaders to do is when you start look, looking at the number of tasks we ask our soldiers to be able to perform, it's a huge number. Uh, I think about two years ago, I'd looked at MOS 19 Delta, you know, just, just to walk the dog on it. <clears throat> and I, I, I went to the soldier's manuals and I started to crunch the numbers. And just looking at critical tasks, you know, MOS related tasks and you have army ta uh, warrior tasks and, and battle drills, that number was over 260 tasks 
measurable tasks that we ask our soldiers to be proficient in. So, you know, or the company commander, you know, is prioritizing his Mets, you know, to meet mission requirements. Well, it becomes very important at the platoon squad all the way down to the individual soldier level that those leaders take the same, same concept of prioritizing because there's not enough time and there's not enough resources. And so that, that foundation, you know, if you, if you don't tailor that foundation right, you know, you'll just throw up your hands because there are too many tasks that you could train. So it all goes back to the mission. You know, the mission drives what we train. So, you know, I think we never really got down into that level of detail with previous doctrine. Yeah, I, I would just add that, so if you look at doctrine, that's the process. That's what you should do. Um, ATN and CATS are the, are the tools to assist one in, in doing it. Uh, and what we're doing, if you were to ask me, you know, what we're doing next in the doctrine realm is, is we're creating a tool called a long-range planning tool that pulls the um, data that's in the combined arms training strategies and makes it really easy to use. It, it's almost like instead of teaching someone long division, we're going to hand them a calculator. So it'll identify the, the mission essential task if it's a company or above. It'll help identify the battle task if it's platoon or below. It'll link the proponent recommended training events to best train um, that training event or that task. It'll also give you the resources that are recommended to support it, whether it's land, ammunition, you know, whatever, how much time approximately takes to train that. And it'll give you a link to a calendar uh, that's linked into DTMS to track it. And if your company commander uses that also, it'll auto-generate a training schedule for you. Um, so we're looking to release that here in the not too distant future, in the next quarter or two. But yeah, that should be a huge step forward. And then we're also working on a handbook to kind of um, further flush out some of the how-to processes at Platoon and Below to talk leaders uh, at that echelon, squads, and down um, about some best uh, TTPs on, on how to do that. And we're looking at publishing that probably in the April-May timeframe through ATN. Awesome. We're going to keep an eye out for that one. Um, I, I think in the realm of training, you, you know, understanding the doctrine is your, is your first step. But you can't do the doctrine unless you use these tools, you know, that we've spent a lot of effort and time and money in. You can't, you know, with, without these tools, you can't get to your headquarters DA standard medal. You can't get to training and evaluation outlines. You can't get to the videos and the tutorials that go into a lot of detail. So, so in the training world, you know, it's the doctrine first, but you have to have a good understanding of what all of these tools, whether it's ATN, DTMS, or CATS, what they deliver and how, how they help you do this job of training your unit. What are some of the other tools and, and books and things out there that you would advise, first of all, our graduates out of PCC, the pre-command course, mm -hmm. and also some of our, our young leaders that are getting ready to step back into the course out of, out of Fort uh, Leavenworth and CGSOC. What would you tell them to put in their kit bags today? Well, I mean, some of the stuff just at CAC-T, and we're probably getting ready to move it over, is uh, how the Army fights. Uh, we, our Center for Army's Lessons Learned just developed, uh, great Army civilian, Joyce Burnett, just developed for brigades, divisions, and corps, just incredible website that you can get to with a username and password, but it links doctrine, it, it links the uh, entire scenario of how we fight, it's got uh, inner, inner links to, if I was a three, I would go onto that site. It would be my favorite. You could go to every combat training center as far as AAR teach tools. It's got best practices into the centers of excellence. Um, between that and ATN, if you had this, those two sites, and we're getting ready to, 
I'm going to give the people back to TMD to manage it, but I, at some point I would love that on ATN, so there's just one site that they go to. Um, between those two, you really have everything you need to tr manage training, to provide classes on the, the, just the doctrinal teach, and then some best practices on, you know, to assess training, you know, so I, I, that's my very uh, biased view of it. Uh, Bill, uh, Paul, what do you think? And Ritz has got some good stuff too from the, the Project Athena and, and there's other things inside the CAC kind of silos, that, you know, that, that's another one I would have them plug into my favorites, you know, the whole con continuum of learning. So but, I, I would just make the, the pitch for FM70. Again, the base document is 25 pages-ish um, and then I'd recommend the at least these four appendices. So appendix, appendix A, Commander's Training Guidance. Appendix B, the Task Crosswalk. Uh, appendix E, Training Means. Um, Rich was talking about training circulars um, earlier. So Appendix E is the old um, Training Circular 25-30 company training meeting. We, we codified it in Doctrine, so it's, it's right there in the FM now. And then the last one, if you're going to a tactical unit, would be Appendix I, which is the live fire training. So we, we wrote most of the um, FM. Uh, in-house um, with General Lombardo's assistance though we did reach out to the uh, combat training centers for assistance with the uh, live fire training so that's coming most of that's coming straight from the OCs uh, that deal with you know brigade and below level live fires you know on a rotational basis so a lot of great work uh, came from them All right. well gentlemen I can't thank you enough for coming out and talking today um, at the same time of all of this amazing doctrine that's being now put out throughout Fort Leavenworth, I have to say that if train until you can't get it wrong is something that you really want to invest in further, you can't go wrong with finding a copy of FM70 on the APD website. It's also right there with all the other doctrine and the training circulars that will help support your training objectives overall. We also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. Our production is coordinated by Mr. Ted Crisco, and our editing and sound is provided by the always doctrinally correct Captain Wyatt Harper. If you enjoyed today's episode, please hit the subscribe button on either Apple or Google Podcasts and get new episodes automatically. And you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook uh, for updates on the Combined Arm Doctrine Directorate on our new episodes, Doctrine Digest video shorts, audio books, and most importantly, some new doctrine. Uh, you can continue to follow the team at the Combined Arm Center training at USA CAC Training on Twitter for updates on their training publications, tools, that new handbook that's coming out. And also, you can use their Victory Through Training hashtag to be able to tag them into content and posts that you have as you're training your organizations across the United States Army and further. Finally, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean, and this has been Breaking Doctrine.